Mi gente, feliz año nuevo, bienvenidos a mis hermanos. This episode is fire and full of great information given by a 14-year firefighter veteran, James Gearing, out of Florida. Wellness is more than lifting weights, ladies and gentlemen, and James breaks down what wellness encompasses truly. Let's listen to James Gearing. Mi gente, mis hermanos, mis hermanas, bienvenidos a mi podcast, Brownie and Blue. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is MC, coming back at you with another podcast of Brownie and Blue. I am with my next guest, James Gearing. James Gearing is a 14-year veteran firefighter from Florida. Uh, he's also by way of across the pond, the UK. You will uh, be able to tell as soon as he starts speaking. And uh, he has a very successful podcast, Behind the Shield. It'll be on my show notes as well. He's a father, a husband, and he's also a first responder that is championing for wellness in all of its forms for all first responders. Welcome, James. How are you? Good, thank you. And I've just realized now why your show is called Brownie and Blue. So I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of a play on, right? So, you know, it's just beautiful. To... <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that you would want to add uh, to just kind of you, your background, maybe what, you know, I haven't put in the uh, intro? No, no, as far as the intro, I think that's, that's pretty much it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can definitely expand as we get into some of the, the questions. But no, I mean, you summed it up. That's pretty much me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I had the fortunate um, meeting with you on a meeting with uh, Reps for Responders, which is a group that meets in a sense of a Zoom style, AA style, and you were a guest speaker. And after that, I reached out to you. Uh, I talked about my story and then I asked you to come onto the show. So with that being said, you are a champion of mental, in a sense, mental wellness, physical wellness, and how those things intersect. How in your history did this come about? Because I read your bio and you were a stuntman, <laughs> a lifeguard, along with other jobs, uh, can you tell the listeners why you even became a firefighter? Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a funny story. And I, it's definitely a takeaway is don't ever believe someone when they tell you you can't do something. Um, because very long story short, I grew up in England. And when we were at school age, you do the annual school physical. And I want to say I was young. I was probably, I had to be about 12. 
and they did the, you know, the full physical, the eye test, and you know, I had jacked up eyes as far as vision, but then they, they pull out the color vision book and I can see a few of the numbers and the rest are literally like, you know, random ink blots. And so they said, all right, well, James, well, you're colorblind, so you can never be a pilot, a firefighter, basically anything cool, but feel free to, you know, herd cats, you know, train badgers, all these kind of things. But yeah, anything that actually involves manhood, you can just forget it. So, um, so I literally believed it. It's a person with a white coat and stethoscope telling me that's in my body. So for years and years and years, I had written that off and really did fumble my way through life for a long time because that was initially my goal was to be a doctor and a firefighter and or a firefighter um and it took me to ultimately through my stunt work meet an american girl move to america with her after we got married and end up in orlando and there was a fire academy close to where i worked and i'd actually read about the american fire service in a muscle and fitness magazine and saw that they did not only the fire, but the EMS all combined here. And was like, it, I don't know why it took me 26 years to have this epiphany, but I finally realized that I could actually see colors and maybe <laughs> this doctor was completely wrong. So made a vow that I was just gonna go for it. And when it got to the medical portion, I would explain to him like, hey, I know you're gonna show me a book. I'm only gonna be able to do some of these, but please name something in this office and I'll tell you what color it is. And that's exactly what happened. And then that was the beginning. So that's kind of why it took me to, to be in America at 27 years old, where I finally became a firefighter. But the good side of that is obviously it gave me 10 years of, you know, experience in other areas that then I brought into the fire service too. So like, just to go uh, on that, what were the other things that you brought in as a benefit to the fire service that you did? Um, like so. I mean, career-wise, some awful jobs that gave me gratitude, <laughs> like working, <laughs> I worked in one, I did temp work for a while and worked in a rubber dinghy factory and I got to tie the knot that held the valve to the valve cap wow. for eight hours a day. I worked in a pizza factory for a day, um, you know, so just you really got an insight into some awful jobs that you really i personally didn't want to do there's people that have done it for a long time and kudos to them to have that discipline to be able to do that um lifeguarding was huge so i did that for quite a few years and then obviously as i mentioned the the, the stunt work um but i think it like i said it really reinforced my passion that once i kind of gave myself permission to enter the fire service that this was my shot and the same as, you know, obviously in law enforcement too, when I was, when that door opened, I was like, I'm not going to be a firefighter. I'm going to be the best firefighter I can be. Not the best firefighter because there's much better ones out there than me, but I wanted to be the best version. So I, you know, trained my ass off when we went through school. I went from a C, C student in regular school to an A student in fire school, the medic school. Um, so I think just that appreciation and then drawing that bow back so much that when I finally got to let it go, it was 100% all in. Well, that's amazing. Um, I think everybody has a, a story, right, that they have a passion and there's adversity that they may reach and your adversity was somebody labeled you as you can't do any of this because you can't see color. And at some point, the epiphany was there, as you talked about, and you just went and tried it, you know. Um, so 
some people may take that label and they may not ever try it. They may not ever, they may just live to that label and they just, that's their glass ceiling. So they'll never go beyond that. So I think that's an incredible lesson. Um, so you have been a firefighter in Florida? Florida and California. Okay, so Florida and California. So you have East Coast, West Coast uh, ties and experiences within first responding. Can you talk about a time as a first responder and over the years of your career, um, have you ever experienced trauma on and or off the job? And with that, how did you cope with any of traumas that you've dealt with personally or that you've seen that affected you personally? Yeah, absolutely. So what I realized, and you know, I, I ended up writing a book last year, and this is not a shameless plug, but it kind of, I pulled some of those stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I pulled some of those stories in there to kind of illustrate some of the points. So um, there, there were obviously traumas. Like I had, I was actually in a house fire when I was four years old and me, my sister, my brother almost died. Um, and my sister's heroism at eight years old basically got us out. Um, and we had a giant wall collapse within a couple of feet of our car one time and almost killed us. It crushed all the cars that were in the parking lot. So we had some near death things when we were younger. Um, and, but apart from that, I didn't bring a lot of trauma into the job. And I know in the rep, rep for responders conversation, we talked about childhood trauma. So I was very lucky aside from those few events, you know, I, I, I'd say I had a pretty, you know, empty palette as it were when I pinned the badge on my chest and there were definitely some some calls well not some calls there were a shitload of calls excuse my language there were a lot of calls um that Man, this is a this is an adult show <laughs> okay good good I apologize I, I swear a lot um but uh you know there were there were a lot you know that were horrific and I think that you've seen you know anyone listening to this has probably seen the same thing so I'm not glorifying I'm not saying I saw more than the average person Anyone in our profession sees some things that no people should ever see. Um, but what I saw in my profession, in the men and women I served alongside, wasn't so much the acute trauma, but it was the cumulative effect of trauma. So we have our men and women that were at the Vegas shooting, that were at 9-11, that were at 7-7, that were in November 13th in Paris. That was an acute event, and that in itself would be enough to you know, to really, really cripple someone. But the other 99% of the fire service of law enforcement, of corrections, of, you know, dispatch, it's year upon year of these things that are still awful, but compared to the most awful things, they're kind of minimalized. So what I found was that cumulative weight, my own divorce definitely was another element that added a lot of weight to it. Um, paramedic school in the fire service, you don't get to just stop work and go to school. You do it on your days off and then ride with another fire department. So you basically, you, you pretty much work seven days a week for a year straight while maintaining being a single father. Um, but as far as the positive, so obviously going in with very little trauma was a huge, huge thing. But I think one of the other things that I did well was I exercised, I ate well. I had a mindful practice. I did yoga. I did some meditation. Um, you know, I, I would go out into nature, the beach, you know, the, the forest. Um, so by default, by luck, I had already had some very healthy habits that I think were very effective in counteracting a lot of the trauma. Cause where I worked in the fire service is always very, very busy. Um, 
uh, stations that did see a lot of horrible stuff. So I was able to separate that. But when I look back now, absolutely the fact that I didn't bring a lot of trauma into the job, I think was also another huge element of why I was able to, to deal with it. Yet so many of our men and women took their own lives or succumbed to addiction. I mean, it's a, uh, it, you, you brought up a couple of things. Um, one, you brought up kind of childhood trauma, which I've been through. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that I've been through more. I'm not bragging because nobody wants to brag about childhood trauma. Um, but I have gone through my childhood trauma to where it, in a sense, has uh, made me who I am today, which is a survivor, right? Um, and then there's people that don't know how to deal with that childhood trauma or don't even really know that they've gone through childhood trauma because they've just kind of grown through to be a grown up and whatever that means. And then there's no, um, in a sense, escaping that pain and all that suffering that they've just kind of put to the side. And then they get into a position like you talked about, first responder position where they see trauma or they may have gotten into an officer involved shooting or they may have, you know, saved a young child or, you know, one of the things that I've seen as far as like just scenes from fire departments and stuff like that is, you know, you got the big ladder and you're going into a building um, and you're trying to save people out of this burning building and you're trying to get them down to safety even in the aspects or just 9-11. I mean, 9-11 for one, you had people literally just jumping out of what, you know, 30, 40 uh, flights up and they just had no other uh, option in their mind. And you're seeing that as a firefighter looking up and you're trying to go up or if they're inside the building. So you have all these things, childhood trauma, and then you have on the job stuff. And you talked about people that have taken their own life and it's in all across uh, first responding, you know, whether it's law enforcement or fire service, um, you identified something, there was a problem with all this and how it was treated and how it was kind of attacked by leadership or not even attacked, but just more so neglected. Um, and so we use the word wellness, right? I remember when I was on the police department, uh, they said you can take wellness for an hour and a half before your shift or after your shift. And that wellness just meant that you went to go work out. Mm -hmm. But wellness encompasses so many other things. So can you define wellness and how you see it? And then also, like you kind of talked about it already with yourself, but just what you've seen in first responder life, how wellness is really not, um, in a sense, it's more neglected than it is championed to go and do these certain things that what is wellness to you? Yeah, no, I think that's a very important question. So I get the comment, oh, James, you have that mental health podcast. And I tell them, like, no, I have that. I don't want you to die podcast because it's true. Like the, the, the problem is we focus on this. And an example I use, if you go to paramedic school, medical school, you know, you're one semester you might focus on the cardiovascular system or the renal system, you know, and, and the body doesn't work like that. The body isn't, you know, oh, I'm just going to take care of the liver. I'm just going to take care of the lungs. They all interact and the brain is obviously the same. So wellness is an overall global, meaning the whole body, um, you know, health. Um, and uh, I think the same misunderstanding happens with wellness versus fitness and a perfect example is you look at the the strong men of let's say the 80s 90s you know era 
they were a lot of times morbidly obese, incredibly strong, but incredibly unhealthy. The bodybuilders, you know, the you know, Ronnie Coleman is an absolute wreck at the moment. I mean, amazing, amazing man, but his body is obliterated. His spine is, is completely messed up. So I think that's just it is when you're talking about wellness within that hour, absolutely do some fitness stuff, but also do some mobility and then take some time to maybe, you know, meditate or just walk around the building, talking to one of your brother firefighters or police officers and get some stuff off your chest. So wellness to me is, you know, is, is the, the lack of disease, as they say, the absence of, of, you know, of illness. Mm-hmm. And that applies to so many facets within your, your overall health. So, you know, you've got the pillars of, of health that they talk about, which is nutrition, exercise, you know, mindful practice and sleep. And sleep is obviously a huge one that I talk about a lot. So if we just look at wellness as fitness, and if we just look at mental health as, oh, it's what you saw, we're missing that global interaction of overall health of the human being, mental and physical. That's, I mean, that's huge, right? Because from my standpoint, I see wellness and how I've seen in law enforcement from my experience, they just look at it as like, go and work out, lift some weights, and that's it. And then, and then when you get in trouble or when you, uh, you know, let's say on admin leave or not even that, but let's say you get into a traumatic situation on the job, they're just like, oh, okay, well, uh, do you want to see somebody? I mean, I had a buddy who actually saw somebody die in front of him and was actually trying to saw this last breath get, go out of this man and his supervisor came to him and all they said was, hey, are you good? And that was it, <laughs> you know, didn't address anything other than the fact is, is that, okay, compartmentalize this thing and then move on to the next thing and don't worry about it because you'll be fine. Uh, and that's kind of the mantra that I've seen through law enforcement. Um, so the wellness piece, which is, as you put it, encompasses all these different things. And I love the way you put it because you put it as the body, you know, the functioning body. And, you know, one thing can't work without another. Um, in your opinion and estimation of how much, like how much is wellness being done or not done in the sense of like being supported or programs for whatever from leadership and where you've been, whether it's in California, in Florida, and even in talking with other people in first responder um, careers? Yeah, so I, I've been very, very lucky to have been a fire gypsy. And if you look at my career on paper, I look like an absolute disaster. You know, he was at this department and this department, then he went two and a half thousand miles across the country and then came back. But I think, you know, the, the path that was written for me, whether you believe in God, the universe, chaos theory, whatever it is, is I was supposed to see multiple departments of which I think I've seen one of the best departments in the country and one of the worst, hands down. Um, and within that, you know, the best didn't actually have a great wellness philosophy. Um, the worst had the potential for actually having a pretty good one, but it was opposed by a lot of the people didn't understand it. Um, but I think there's a, we, we found ourselves in a very, very bad wellness arena overall, I think in a lot of departments, because there is that belief that um, it's all basically about the bottom line. It's all about money. And we are bound the same way as our profession. 
are bound by the pension. And you know, the one of the most tragic scenes you can ever have is a first responder with a countdown app on their phone, <laughs> counting down right. to their, their, their retirement. Yeah. Well, that's the same short-sighted philosophy, I think, on, on wellness, where at the high level, you see over and over again that person who's trying to make themselves look good, good in a fiscal year. And nothing is going to improve if you're trying to look like a rock star in 12 months. So what you end up with is, I mean, you go to leadership seminars and they talk about investing in your people. Well, I think that we have the absolute opposite in many, many first responder departments where you have these men and women, I'll use the fire service as an example. Most departments work 56 hours a week and they're awake for 24 hours every third day. Um, and it's so sad because we've allowed it to be framed, you know, one day on, two days off. That's absolute crap. When you think of an eight-hour day being a, you know, a work day, it's three days on, one day off. And there is a there is a domino effect where it is abs. I mean, I'm not being dramatic. It's killing our men and women. The the swing shifts, the split shifts that you guys work, same thing. So, I don't think it's malicious. But I think that, I mean, there's no better example than the last couple of weeks of how disgusting politics can be and how there's a complete disregard for human life when it comes to some of this you know, ridiculousness. Um, but I think that there's a part of that that's in play. And then a lot of ignorance is bliss. So one of the, the goals of my podcast, and I'm, you know, obviously yours as well, is I want to get people educated because when they're educated, then they get angry. When they're angry, then they're going to force change. But right now, there are very, very few departments that understand wellness. And so it's that Christmas bonus mentality. You've got these people making themselves look great. In the meantime, two officers to, to a car becomes one officer to a car, becomes fewer cars on the streets. And then, you know, something happens and then they're like, oh, where are all the cops? Like, well, you cut them. Why is that fire station next to me closed? Because you cut them, you know? So, and I think sadly that, that, reduction in in staffing that reduction in 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 the welfare of the responders the people we serve to understand that's a reduction in service to them as well we're you know we're poorer trained we have poorer health you know we see a lot of very deconditioned police officers and firefighters and medics out on the streets um so if you want to change the world you change your focus from a fiscal year to a 10 year program and you understand the philosophy that if I am truly invest in my people and I put in the appropriate, you know, wellness initiatives, mental health, fitness, you know, um, nutrition support, um, changing shifts. So these men and women have enough time to recover between their shifts. So that sleep deprivation isn't killing them. The long-term budgetary savings are going to be huge. But right now we're so short-sighted that we are literally killing our men and women. You no, know, it's uh, you keep you you kept uh, honing in on sleep deprivation, and I want to hear just you know I'm, I know it's a a deep dive, um, and you have a lot of knowledge on it. Can you just, in a sense, kind of like boil it down, give a brief how this really affects? Because I I've worked midnights for six years and uh, six and a half years right out right out the gate in my career. And I was young, right? So I felt like that's where all the action was. So I worked from 7.30 at night to seven in the morning. And then I'd sleep all day 
and I didn't have a, I didn't have a kid then, and I wasn't married, and I didn't have any other life except going to work and coming back. But at the same time, I also felt that I was never rested. I don't care how long I slept. You know, I would wake up at, you know, I'd probably go to bed around nine o'clock because once I got home, I was kind of up again. And then I would go to bed. And then if I didn't have blackout curtains, <laughs> it was hard for me to get to sleep. And then I would wake up around 12 or one o'clock and I would try to get back to sleep again because my next shift obviously was at 7.30. So I had to mm -hmm. drive in. And I just never felt rested. I never got used to it. And I can't imagine with the fire service, I mean, it's a 24 hour shift. So can you just speak briefly about what sleep deprivation, how that impacts choice or not choice, but just even um, your actions on the job? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, the answer could be summarized with everything. I mean, that's the best way of putting it, but to elaborate. Um, so if you think about this, obviously, every you know, mammal that isn't nocturnal, we are awake during the day and we sleep at night. That's an inherent biological you know, truth. And, uh, but on the same time, you know, on the flip side, there are horrible people that do horrible things when the sun goes down. There are buildings and car crashes when the sun goes down. So we have to, some of us have to be awake and man those positions and protect our civilians while they sleep. So, you know, that's my whole thing is that we have to be there. It's just, we can give our men and women a lot more time to recover because we've asked them to be awake while we sleep soundly in our beds. The short-term acuity element, when you have uh, 24 hours without sleep, which is, you know, this is from baseline to only 24 hours, not talking about a first responder, you know, 10 years into their career, you basically neurologically are the same as having a blood alcohol limit of 0.1. So over the limit. Okay. That's with one 24 hour shift. Wow. So, you know, it's, so then, you know, I, I, I pose the question to the, you know, the law enforcement community, the fire community, the medic community, you think of, for example, a perfect, perfect uh, analogy is the intersection wrecks. The police officer that blows through the red light and kills that minivan full of, of kids mm. or, you know, the medic that pushes the wrong drug, the, uh, the firefighter that falls off the aerial. How many of these line of duty deaths were actually sleep related? You know, it's how many of these civilians that died when we didn't do our job the way we were supposed to were sleep related. You know, the teenager that's reaching for his driving license in the glove box that gets shot because we think in our sleep deprived, excuse me, sleep deprived state, he was reaching for a weapon. Um, so that's the acute thing. I mean, that's a very, very important thing. But then chronically, sleep is when we repair. For example, neurologically, when we're asleep, in the deep sleep phase, when you're not waiting for a call, you're not listening to a radio, you're not waiting for a page, um, the brain is literally washed with a fluid. And that is what kind of gets rid of a lot of the white noise, things that we don't need to remember and process the thoughts that we do. Um, neuromuscularly, say you and I have been in the gym and we've done a workout because we take our job seriously and you know we've we've gone to CrossFit or you know strongman training or triathlon training, whatever we did. Well, when we sleep, that's when we repair. So when we wake up the next day, not only motor skills are we better, we were at the range yesterday too, and now we're a little bit better with a pistol. Um, if we don't have that sleep, we don't repair and you don't get better with your pistol. So chronically, you've had that skill acquisition, you're far more likely to get 
injury, roll your ankle, pull the muscle, throw your back out. Um, but then even further, there, the sleep medicine world hands down has acknowledged that mental health disease, you know, um, you know, all the issues that we see mental health wise, and then cardiovascular strokes, obesity, diabetes, you name it, they all increase when you don't have sleep. Because if you're not repairing, your immune system starts becoming, you know, hypersensitive, and you're not able to, to rest and recover. So when you think about it, basally, everything sleeps. So if you don't sleep, you're going against the very nature of being a human being. So if we're going to ask our men and women to stay up, we have to expand that rest and recovery period to try and get them as close to zero by the time they get back on shift so that they can do it again. And that's not the way we're doing it at the moment. We're not only working on men and women, but then we're understaffed as well. So we're like, hey, you know, by the way, I know you just did that shift that's greater work week than the guy that bags your groceries, but I'm also going to need you to stay another 24 hours because I'm really shit at staff in my department. And I've got no one to cover that shift. And it, and it all comes down to money too, because I think at some point in an officer's life or just even a first responder, they start looking at you know their top three years of retirement. And so they start, I know from my experience that they just start working as much overtime as possible. You know, and then the, ultimately it goes back to your first point of wellness where you stop, you stop doing the job for what it is and you stop taking care of yourself and all you start really caring about is your pension. Benefits. Right? Yeah, yeah, your benefits. Um, what sorts of things have you seen work or not work for affecting change in wellness for first responders? That's a good question because I wish I could say I had all these things that I've seen work. But I mean, perfect example, Orange County in Florida, um, they had their prior chief, Chief Droz, really supported them. And even their chief before that was, was an innovator in the wellness. And their wellness department, it got to the point where uh, departments around the country were reaching out to them. It took one change of administration to completely undo all that good work. Mm. Um, so, I mean, again, educated and angry, I think is it. I, I think the only way you can speak you should be able to lay it out on the table and say, this is affecting the health of our men and women. And that'd be it. That's the only argument you have to make. And this is affecting the acuity, the, the, the ability of our men and women to be able to do their job. And then you drop the mic and you walk away and everyone fixes it. And it's great. <laughs> but sadly, that's not the case. Like there's a lot of people out there that really don't care. I mean, there's no better example than right now. All of a sudden we're talking about the wellness of people in a country that's had an obesity epidemic for 50 plus years. And now we're saying we care about human lives. Well, you really haven't walked the walk up to this point, you know, leaders. Um, so that's kind of what I see as well. So the other side, sadly, is if we can educate the people on the fiscal savings of a wellness program. So companies like O2X, they've done a lot of stuff, um, uh, a lot of great work with Boston Fire Department, for example, and using their wellness training have actually saved the city of Boston a lot of money on their fire department. I okay. think they work with the police as well. Um, so that's, that's it. The bean counters understand money. So if you can educate the, the people in these positions that long-term you're actually going to be making a huge saving by not killing your men and women or the medically retiring or the making mistakes on the job, I mean, you know, what, what, what is the, what's the cost of a George Floyd type incident on a department? I mean, it's got to be millions and millions. So oh, yeah. if, we, if we can 
show them that element, I, th I mean, sadly, that, that's it. It has to be the fiscal thing because the argument should be our men and women are dying. We need to fix this. And that should be it. But I mean, we've all tried that for years and years and many departments. It's just not working. So really tying in how much you will save by investing in your people and keeping them healthy and therefore keeping that knowledge and that experience on the department a lot longer as well. I really think that's the key, but that's a very tragic answer in my opinion. So one of the programs that I think could be, you know, and I had a guest on his name's uh, Matt Damiancic. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or talked with him, no. but uh, he is a, he's an amazing mind, but also very, um, into wellness. He's a police chaplain. Um, he's also a peer support guy out of LA, but uh, he talks about the upstream approach. Um, and the upstream approach is more so in the sense of this wellness, this all-encompassing wellness, but mainly the part about, in a sense, telling young academy people uh, ways to be able to cope with all the stuff that they're going to see. And part of that is to give them programs that have nothing to do with the departments, because we know that the people in departments or fire service places, they don't trust their own people because, you know, in some senses, if you say you have a problem or you have issues, there has been instances where your problem isn't the problem, you become the problem. And then they start trying to see if you're unfit, which ultimately, they're reaching out for help, but yet in a sense, they're trying to be told like, you know, they're, they're in a sense dissuaded to not say that they need help um, from certain instances. So part of this upstream approach is to have all types of uh, teaching and lessons and even talking about empathy and learning empathy and, you know, having these things in the academy, you know, we teach so much about, you know, I don't know what the fire service, but in police world, we teach driving, shooting, defensive tactics, but it's rare that they start talking about, you know, what if you do have issues outside of work, divorce, uh, single parent, you know, um, maybe alcoholism, or maybe you have financial issues, all this stuff on top of the trauma that's going on with what you see at work. So would you say that private nonprofit type places that could actually provide kind of like a safe space and go into these places and academies and talk to them and say, if you guys ever need to talk or just ever need to connect with other people, starting right out the gate and then teaching these kind of coping skills, is that something that could be effective in the change that we're looking for on how leaders even look at wellness? So here's, my philosophy and it's something i kind of stumbled across about a year ago so let me let me turn the microphone on you when when <laughs> you were testing for your department did you take a polygraph yes did you take a psych eval yes okay as did i on three out of four of mine and successfully lied through three out of four of mine um <laughs> because the polygraph is complete shit and so smoke and mirrors um, and I learned, and I, I'm sad, but I mean, to, to kind of elaborate on that, my very, very first pre-app for Miami Beach, if anyone's listening out there, yes, you fuckers. Um, <laughs> I, they had a, you know, a pre-app and it was like, have you, have you done this stuff? And I'm like, yeah, you know, 
10 years prior, I tried ecstasy and danced a lot, hugged a lot of people. That was it. Um, but you asked me to be honest and they're like, all right, you're immediately disqualified. And I was like, ah, oh, okay. So I have to lie to be a firefighter. Got it. And after that, that's exactly what I did. So, you know, as I'm sure a lot of people know, polygraph is more smoke and mirrors to get you to confess to something that is on your mind rather than actually prove that you are not telling the truth. And then the psyche vows are, and I joke, joke about this all the time, but it's literally like this. Do you like flowers? Do you like cats? Do you like dogs? Do you like molesting children? Do you like daffodils? I'm sorry, what, what was that? So it's, it's complete BS. So my thing is this, you know, MC, James, we're vying for these law enforcement or fire positions. You do a full background check. Okay, this person obviously hasn't done anything bad that we can tell. So we like this candidate. Take that same money that you wasted on polygraphs and psyche vows and instead give us, while we're in the academy, we're doing our defensive tactics, we're doing our push-ups, we're doing our PT, but also during that orientation time, we do three, five sessions with a counselor. Mm. So now I, very fortunate candidate, get to talk to them, offload, you know, the house fire, the, the war collapse, you know, whatever, my parents' divorce. Little things were definitely gonna help. You, as you mentioned, probably more significant childhood trauma, actually get to offload a lot of the things you take into the job before you pin that badge on your chest. Not only have you now allowed to, you know, been able to offload a lot of things, but now as you and I enter our parallel careers, we have a go-to person within the department that if we start falling apart, going through divorce, have a rough call, we immediately, not who am I going to talk to? I know who I'm going to talk to, Jill, Stephen, you know, whoever. And so that's what I think we need to do. I hate the fact that we have to lie, rely on nonprofits. There shouldn't be any nonprofits when it comes to mental health and first responders. But right now we've abandoned them. So that's the incredible men and women that have stepped up and said, well, in the meantime, we're going to do something about it. But the same way that you and I would be put through PT and hopefully in the law enforcement world of 2021, maybe jujitsu and some other things, the mental health counseling should be part of that. And if we have that as a norm from day one and we have a go-to, that to me is how we address the mental health epidemic at the front door. That's huge. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm on board. However you want to form a committee and start changing it, I'm on board. <laughs> so just get me on there. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've been talking about wellness. We've been talking about all these things. At what point specifically, like, you've been in 14 years, right? So at what point in this 14 years did you say, there's a problem here and something needs to be done and it needs to be brought to a stage where it needs to be noticed. Yeah, it was a very, very, you know, significant period. So I had at about, let me see, 14 years. So 12 years when I started the podcast. So 10 years on for a two year period, I buried six friends, mm. like first responders that I knew, you know, firefighters and, and it was a host of disease. It was, it was mental health issues. There was a suicide. There was a um, overdose. Then we had, you know, autoimmune disease. I had a heart attack. I had a, um, a stroke. I mean, all these different things. And to the point, and again, referencing the book, I write about this. I, I hate bagpipes now because when you've heard them over and over again, you've seen enough folded American flags given to grieving families. 
you're done. And so coming from a background, so we talked about my actual work, but my educational background, I went through exercise physiology in London, uh, University of London, and then I finished at the uh, at UF, the, the Gators. Um, and uh, so I had that background. I was an athlete. I was a coach. So I knew the wellness realm better than most, not an expert by any means, but I had a good grasp of you know, what wellness should look like. Right. And watching our men and women dropping like flies, I'm like, there has to be an answer. So initially I was looking for podcasts. I listened to Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss and Barbell Shrugged and The Squad Room, which is a great law enforcement one, Garrett DeSaw, that was a uh, to Shaw, should I say, was on uh, my podcast too. Um, but I was looking for that firefighter one. And we have some good ones, but there's like operations and tactics, and then there's leadership, but there wasn't anything devoted to wellness. So that was kind of the aha moment. We had um, uh, fire chief Steve Negley take his own life, and then um, uh, 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 Chief Dangerfield, excuse me, who was um, out on the East Coast, take his own life. So we had a host of uh, suicides too. And it was the perfect storm. And I was like, all right, enough is enough. So I started this Facebook page called the Dark Side Project that was a mental health thing, really just to get people to submit videos of whatever stage they were at, whether it was in crisis, whether it was recovered, whether it was I'm doing fine, always have, and just try and collate it to remove some of the stigma and you know, that inclusion, like we're all going through some version of something. But then with the podcast element, I'm like, well, that's where the answer lies. The the, the stigma is one thing, but we all, we kind of stumble at, right, what's next? I accept it. It's the thing. Um, And I knew there were incredible men and women out there with solutions. I'd heard people talk about, you know, community like Sebastian Junger with his book Tribe and, uh, you know, um, Kurt Parsley with his philosophy on sleep with his Navy SEALs. And so I started reaching out to them, started the podcast, and that was really it. You know, I mean, I could, I could proclaim I'm an expert and start touring the country speaking, but that would be complete crap. I'm not, but I know the experts. And so I want to bring them, the people that devoted their life to studying these areas. And as time went on, you know, I'm at 400 plus episodes now, these lines intersect on the Venn diagrams and you find these absolute hard truths that people can relate to. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically my podcast and ultimately the book was born out of tragedy. It was just being sick and tired of burying the men and women who sacrificed everything to serve complete strangers and never even made it to retirement. I think it's amazing and it's kudos to you too, to kind of recognize what the issue was and to be in a sense, what I would consider forward thinking uh, podcast is such a great platform to be able to get information out and to have people because it's so readily accessible and it's easy, right, for people to listen on their drive and, and take their time with whatever. Um, so for you to do that and then also for you just to kind of champion a lot of these things and then go down this rabbit hole, which is it, it's a needed thing. Um, you know, I will give you all the credit in the world. I think uh, I've listened to your podcast and they are amazing. They are very filled with tons of information. Um, so, you know, kudos and thank you to you for that. Um, let me ask you this. So what challenges like do you see first responders face in applying these healthy habits that we've been talking about and uh, changes to their kind of like mental, emotional, or even spiritual well-being? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. I think the answer 
is education again. So going back to the sleep deprivation. So let's take your average police officer. What I try and get people to envision is if you and I were both in law enforcement, we're standing on the diamond, on the grinder, on whatever drill ground it looks like. You look around right now in your mind's eye, there's probably 95% of those men and women are in great shape. You might have one. We all had one that was a little chunkier and probably <laughs> did fine. You know, kudos to them. They got through and they made it and they may have even lost weight through their career. But um, overall, you have a, a group of very physically and mentally resilient men and women. Now, fast forward 10 years to your police department, to your fire department. That's not the same landscape anymore. Mm-hmm. Was it because these people, and again, excuse my language, but it's the best description, were they pieces of shit? They were like, oh, you know what? I'm giving up. Now, now I've got this badge. I'm just going to become obese and not care anymore and screw those civilians. No. So there's more to it than, you know, the, the, the caricature of the, the policeman with the donuts and everything. There's a reason why these men and women de- become deconditioned. Now, there are men and women who stay fit despite their career. And I'm definitely one of them. You know, I, I was lucky enough to, to have the right education going into the job. I maintain my fitness. I maintain my body weight. I've been the same weight now than I have been for 20 years. But that's despite the career, not because of the career. So when you work shifts, one of the least understood things about sleep deprivation is it destroys your hormones. And to, to kind of prove this, for the police officers, the firefighters, even the dispatchers out there, find, especially men, because this is something that we focus more on, find a male and ask them what their testosterone is. Someone that's been on for a few years. I guarantee you, almost all of them are going to say it's in the you know, hundreds, two hundreds, maybe three hundreds tops. A lot of them are probably going to say they take testosterone you know, replacement therapy. That is all because of sleep deprivation. So it destroys our hormones, our sex hormones that then become every other hormone, you know. So that's the reason why we had the weight gain. That's the reason even why cops crave sugar and caffeine, hence the caricature, because there's an actual physiological reason for that. So if we can empower these men and women to understand that as we do it now, our careers are set up to set us up for failure, that education then becomes empowerment. Once you understand that, you stop blaming yourself for being this person. And don't get me wrong, there's that 10% that don't care. And that's the 10% we need to get rid of. But the rest of the 90%, once you understand that, then you stop blaming yourself. Then you can start addressing sleep hygiene at home. You can start focusing more on nutrition, you know, but you... you you've got to throw that shackle, that, that shame of... I let myself go. It's my fault because it's not just your fault. Ownership is part of it, but the other part is environment. And I think it's the same even with America. You know, you see a lot of fit people shaming fat people. And, you know, there are so many other elements. And yes, there's some very lazy people out there who don't care, but there's a lot of people that have found their health diminished because it's so much easier to drive through a McDonald's than it is to go to a farmer's market and then make yourself a clean meal. You know, is it right or wrong? doesn't matter. You know, it's one is easier than the other. So I think that's it. Once, once our men and women are educated to the fact that it is, as, as you mentioned earlier, swimming upstream, because it really is wellness in, in our professions, then you can become empowered. Then you can start forging your own way. But you have to understand 
that you are set up for failure and it is going to take extra work to stay healthy as a first responder in America in 2021. Amazing. Let me ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot, James. Please. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot. You're, you're a chief or you're a chief decision maker that you can affect the implementation of programs and all these things on a department. Okay. How would you rectify the ills that we've been talking about with first responders and how it correlates to wellness? Yeah. Um, okay. First, I wouldn't be a chief because I like being a door kicker. <laughs> but hypothetically, hypothetically, um, this is your show. This is your baby. You can do whatever you want with this department. Beautiful. Well, I mean, the work week would be something. So again, you know, it would be staffing departments properly so people weren't being forced to stay extra shifts. It would be taking my profession for a moment. The Northeast works 42-hour work weeks, 24-72. I think that's a great industry standard. So I would blanket that across the U.S. Um, and then obviously law enforcement, you know, the, the medical professions. If you're, if you're doing 12 hours, then you have to allow the rest and recovery. So that's a huge thing. And a lot of the guests that I had on high, high-level physicians, sleep experts, they're like, if you're not addressing your sleep, the other pillars of health are almost null and void. So that's, that has to be the focus. But then it starts at the front door. That, that landscape that I told you about, those different fire departments, Hialeah and Anaheim, first and second, the bar was incredibly high at the front door. So this job isn't for everyone. So you have to set a gauntlet. You know, if you're gonna, so first you create a great environment for these men and women to rest and recover. You pay well. So now you're really attracting the best of the best, just like the Navy SEALs, the Rangers, the PJs of the world, the SAS. And that's how many of those men and women that have been on the show have viewed us. They hold us the same level as them. So that's another philosophy that people need to understand. Um, but then you set the bar high, but then right from, from day one, as, as we talked about before, you address mental health, not just discussion, like, hey, if you feel you need to reach out, then talk to someone. No, actually create a relationship with you know, a counselor, a mental health professional. Having an understanding that the PT you're doing is something you're going to expand on, that you're going to grow on, not get super fit for six weeks and then never exercise again. You know, so create an environment where men and women can work out. You have gyms in your facilities or you have access to local gyms, whatever it is. And then walk in the walk. I, if I'm the chief, I need to be lean. I need to be able to do the job. And I'm not talking about um, two-dimensionally, you know, attractive with abs and pecs and, you know, boulder shoulders. I'm talking right. about being able to do the job. So if I'm there qualifying... And again, let's talk about law enforcement for a second, not qualifying six shots in a paper target, qualifying an outside range under duress. And the chief is next to you doing the same thing, doing burpees and sandbag work before he, you know, goes from carbine to, to sidearm. That's the other thing. You have to walk the walk. So I think that's it. You know, set the bar at the front door, extremely high, which I think it scares people because they feel... I think some departments feel like if the bar is high, they're not going to be able to fill the seats. That's the complete opposite from what I've seen. When you set the bar high, there's a desire for the best of the best to come to your department and, and meet that challenge. And then you just maintain that through your career. So if you're a 30, um, excuse me, a, a 40 or 50 year old officer in the field, you're expected to maintain that. This whole lowering of standards for age, 
sex, you know, whatever is ridiculous. Like in the fire services, there's no better example because say I'm, I'm 46 now, say I stay another 10 years in the fire service, that ladder ain't going to get lighter for me. That ladder's still going to stay in the same weight. You know, that hose is going to be the same weight. So the fact that I'm going to ask you to lower the standards is insanity. So what I have to do as an older athlete is to, is to have the support of my department where I'm able to still function in my forties and fifties. So that'd be kind of like the whole environment is viewing us as tactical athletes and take any of your favorite sports stars, NBA, NFL, you know, premier league, whatever they have trainers, nutritionists, you know, um, psychological coaches, to get the maximum performance for them. We should be viewed exactly the same way. And their rest and recovery is at the top of that pyramid. You really need to get with Matt Damiantic. I'll give you his information. He's, he's Please. You two would be, you two could talk about all types of stuff. He's, <laughs> uh, I think uh, his credentials uh, mirror yours. Um, so let me ask you something with this, as far as this is just interesting to me because you're the first firefighter I've had on the show. Everything has been either from a federal law enforcement or even local law enforcement uh, perspective. I've always wondered because firefighters always show up to an accident scene and me as an officer that worked the scene, are, we don't deal with, but in a sense we deal with, but there was always this kind of rift, right? Like they, they always felt this like, I don't know, it just felt tenuous for whatever reason. So let me ask you this, from your perspective, is there an us against them mentality with law enforcement? So I think there's an us against them in all the shitty departments. And mm -hmm. I'll be very blatant about that because Anaheim is a perfect example. They had a great relationship with PD that they just got it. Like, you know, if, if you're in a high speed pursuit and you wreck your car, you need me to cut you out. Okay, if I go on scene and a guy shows up with a gun, you're the guy <laughs> I'm running towards or running away from shouting your name. Um, so the fact that you have this tension between law enforcement and fire or, and you've probably seen this too, county and city. I've, I've had it and I've talked about this on, on a couple other interviews. I remember going to a transformer fire. I was just on a medical call. So I was on in the, in the fire department, we have what they call rescues, which are basically ambulances, but we have all our fire gear on as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, if a fire bangs out, we're able to respond, we have the tools. And so I was on this medical call and there was this fire, the transformer, the power pole. And it was right next to this very heavily wooded trailer park, old, old trailer park. And it was at the point where this fire was basically going to set fire to the trees, which are then being the trailers. And so I call in my dispatch. I'm like, hey, you know, we've got this fire. You know, we're on a medical call. We don't have any, any uh, suppression equipment. We need an engine. And the dispatcher was arguing with me. And it was one of those corners that you can envision where the dotted line in the road separates city from county. And she was trying to tell me that it wasn't our area. And I'm like, I don't care whose area it is. These people are going to lose their homes, maybe their lives. I know Engine 5, which ended up being the one close to the pulse shooting. There, I can see them from here. Can you please tone these fucking people so that we can get right. this fire put out? Right. And, and so that's the thing. If, if you're in a place where you find that, that resistance, that tension, that's an absolute display of horrendous leadership or lack thereof. So you and I, we need each other. It's a synergistic relationship. So if there's tension between fire and police, 
you all need to check yourselves and start communicating again. My, my last department, we were in our fire station. We had an Orange County Sheriff's office above us. Those guys have never even, the fire never even invited the sheriffs into their station for a chat. So I got there coming from my old place where we chatted to them all the time. Like, all right, well, let's get these guys in and we'd bring them in. They, they'd be all shocked that we even invited them in. But we're, we're you know, you know, chalk and cheese, not chalk and cheese, that's a horrible example. Peas and carrots, as uh, Forrest Gump would say. Um, you know, we, we need each other. So yeah, if, if when that occurs, and we, I've seen it myself and I know it occurs a lot, that's that's the most unacceptable scenario because police and fire each other when when you're arresting firefighters on on a freeway you're a piece of shit you know because we need each other and they're just trying to protect that scene until they get that done you know and vice versa if you're if you're not interacting with with the law enforcement agencies and now an officer's been shot and because of your ridiculous politics he's bleeding out while you're figuring out if you're going to respond shame on you so yeah i mean that's that's a topic that gets me fired up as you can tell because you know we are exactly the same men and women with the same badge just you know the writing is different yeah i hey i'm on board with that and i've always i had one um station when i first started out my career that set a good example of being inclusive with with uh the police department that I worked for and my trainer actually introduced me to the fire station and all the people in the different shifts because I worked an evening shift from 1.30 in the afternoon to one at night. So, but regardless, the guys would always, every time I'd go in there to use the bathroom or whatever the case was, they'd be like, hey man, if you got time, you know, we're going to have food, we're going to have the game on, you know, awesome. don't worry about, you know, going out and buying something, come over you know, maybe it'll cost you like a dollar, you know, just for the fun to get food for the fire station, you know. Um, and that was always my first interaction, which was amazing. And then I've had bad interactions where you had that prideful kind of mentality where, you know, a firefighter was like, no, I'm not moving this cone or I'm not going to do this or this apparatus to not block the road because it wasn't that serious of an accident. Can you just get this out of the way so we can get traffic moving? Um, Stuff like that. So yeah, I completely concur with your assessment. So we're getting to the end. We're gonna wrap up here. I have one last question for you. What is your overall message that you wanna get across? You have two or three minutes. The floor is yours, Mr. James Gearing. I think honestly, and this is for, for the tactical professions and everyone else. I think we have, we have allowed ourselves to believe the philosophy that so many things that take our men and women's lives were unavoidable. And mm. I think that's absolute crap. There are so many things that kill our police officers, firefighters, you know, military, civilians, that are completely preventable. And that's one of the reasons why, again, not shameless plug, but why I wrote the book. It's, it's not a book of answers, it's a book of questions, and it's to sow the seeds. But when we bury our people, and you know damn well that it could have been avoided, let's take an overdose, let's take a you know, suicide, you know, a heart attack at 45 years old, they were absolutely avoidable. So that's, I think, what breaks my heart. You know, if, if someone dies from a bridge collapse in, in an earthquake in San Francisco, there's no avoiding that. Those, pe- those 
poor people were on the way to work and it happened and the concrete failed and they were crushed. Or the poor people in, in Thailand when the tsunami hit, you know, that there's no way around that. But, you know, our police officers that, let's say, let's say a, a person gets hurt, back injury, okay? And so they're on opiates already and they just bring some childhood trauma in. And then let's say their agency doesn't do a very good job, which I hear a lot. You know, I think a lot of us forget that when someone's off hurt to just reach out to make sure they're okay. And now they're in their apartment because they got divorced, you know, so they're not seeing their kids. They're hurt. They're feeling completely emasculated. They're in pain. They've lost their tribe. And then they stick a gun in their mouth or they take too many pills. That was completely avoidable just by us not paying attention and being there for that person. The same with the guy that had the heart attack or the woman that had the, the stroke that we knew was getting morbidly obese, you know, and, and, you know, was drinking on their days off. We could have, we could have intervened. We could have made a difference in the department, in the environment, and as men and women just paying attention. So I think just take a step back and ask yourself, is what we define as wellness these days, truly wellness? You know, the, the pills that you take for your blood pressure and your diabetes, are they going to cure hypertension and diabetes or are you just an addict now? You know, so that's just it. Educated and angry. I know I keep harping on about that. I should make a t-shirt, but that's it. You know, control your own wellness. You truly do have, you know, you are in a driving seat of your own health, but without education, you're, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you're clueless. The more you educate yourself on the power that you have, the, the, the higher chance of longevity that you're going to have, the higher chance of a, a good retirement. If you're a career responder right now, on average, we die about, uh, excuse me, five years after retirement. Stick it to your county, your city, take that retirement and use the hell out of it. So that, that'd be my thing. Educate yourself on how much ownership you actually have of your own health. Awesome message. Last thing, very last thing, I promise. What is the name of the book that you are writing? Okay, so the book is out. Um, I'm actually just finishing okay. um, editing the audio book, which should be out within about a week. And we're recording this on, what are we on? Uh, January 10th-ish, whatever it is today. <laughs> January 9th, um, yeah. Nice. There we go. Um, so the book is called One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter. So the title actually came from a Linkin Park song, and it basically is on the premise that all lives do matter. I know that's a technical, I mean, a political hashtag right now, but it's actually a real thing. Like, actually, everyone's life matters, which is why you and I signed up in the first place. Um, <laughs> but, but like I said, I took a lot of my own personal anecdotes, some just from my personal life, some from work. And then applied wellness, you know, sleep deprivation, obesity, you know, addiction, all these different things that people don't like to talk about. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so, th so that's it. So you can get that on Amazon, uh, paperback and uh, Kindle version, and then the audio book should be out in about a week. Awesome. And so if somebody wants to get in touch with you, uh, James, where can they get in touch with you? Um, so the easiest thing behind the shield podcast, if you Google that, you'll find the website, but it's uh, the website is actually my name because behind the shield was taken. So it's jamesgearing.com is the website and please feel free to email and then on social media, you know, I always answer my messages there. So we're behind the shield on or behind the shield 911 at all the, I mean, Instagram is the one that's actually good. Facebook and Twitter are kind of crap anyway. So I'd go through Instagram. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. We're bringing in this new year, uh, 2021. 
uh, first podcast, first podcast guest of 2021. Thank you for gracing the show, uh, Mr. James Gearing. And uh, again, thank you for everything that you're doing outside of just doing the podcast, but just your voice and whatever other projects you have going on. So thank you so much for being here. Beautiful. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, obviously, we'll have to do this with the microphones reversed and get you on my podcast too. Hey, anytime. Thanks a lot.